Good afternoon, and welcome to Coastal Conversations here on WERU. We explore issues facing Maine's coastal communities through dialogue with people who live, work, and play on our coast. From fisheries to tourism, from energy to environment, from economy to ecology, we go beyond the social media sound bites, probing deeply into complex issues and solutions. Coastal Conversations is produced with help from the University of Maine Sea Grant Program, whose mission is to support Maine's coastal communities through research, outreach, and education. In partnership with the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and the University of Maine, Maine Sea Grant brings marine science to Maine people. This is Natalie Sprinkle from Maine Sea Grant, and I hope you'll stay with us for the next hour of Coastal Conversations. Today's show features the second episode of this year's From the Sea Up podcast series focused on Maine's working waterfront towns. This story today comes to Coastal Conversations from our radio storytelling friend Galen Koch, the producer of the Island Institute podcast called From the Sea Up, which you may recall we have featured on Coastal Conversations several times before, including last month with a story about Eastport. But today we're headed to Gouldsboro, a historic fishing town with over 50 miles of coastline. If you follow coastal issues in Maine at all, you may recall that in 2020, the Norwegian-backed company American Aqua Farms proposed putting two closed-pen salmon farms totaling 120 acres in nearby Frenchman Bay between Gouldsboro and Bar Harbor. That proposal prompted a flurry of opposition from organizations, fishermen, and residents throughout the region. And although American Aqua Farms' initial application for an aquaculture lease was terminated by the Maine Department of Marine Resources in the spring of 2022, a question about the future of Maine's waters took hold in many rural coastal communities. So in this episode, From the Sea Up producers visit South Gouldsboro, a small and active working waterfront with stunning views of Cadillac Mountain and the proposed lease site. With perspectives from a seaweed farmer and cultivator, Sarah Redman, as well as Jerry Potter, a longtime lobsterman, and Sebastian Bell from the Maine Aquaculture Association, this episode explores the identity and needs of one working waterfront community and also asks the question, what kind of working waterfront do people want to see here in the future? And what role does aquaculture play in that future? You're listening to From the Sea Up, a podcast from the Island Institute. I'm Galen Cope. This is my harvest barge. Sweet! The party boat. Um, just gonna grab my battery and a life jacket. Hold us steady, Nicole. Yeah, hold on tight. It's a foggy morning in May, and I'm in a whaler, passing some of Maine's most iconic islands, the porcupines, stave, ironbound. You may not know the names of these islands, but chances are, if you live in Maine or have visited here, you've seen them. They're the cluster of granite and pine tree mounds that dot Frenchman Bay, the body of water nestled northeast of Acadia National Park. And then just across in the fog is, is Cadillac Mountain and MDI. That's Sarah Redmond, a seaweed farmer, cultivator, and researcher. We're not sightseeing today, not in the traditional sense. 
Sarah owns Springtide Seaweed, and today she's taking us from her processing facility in South Gouldsboro to her seaweed farm in Frenchman Bay. Bar Harbor is right over there behind the islands. The fog does this beautiful thing where it just like pumps over the islands. It's so crazy. As we turn the corner around Stave Island, we start to see Sarah's seaweed farm which, from the surface, shows up as lines of colorful lobster buoys and a few mooring balls. So my farm is uh, 20 acres off of Stave Island, and it consists only of moorings and submerged horizontal long lines with buoys. So it's very simple. We don't have a lot of gear. We don't have any sort of complex systems. Um, we just have moorings to hold our ends and then we string our, our ropes between the moorings and they're held up with buoys and they're down um, six feet or so below the surface. Sarah grows sugar kelp, which is a pretty common crop in Maine. And she grows some species that are less commonly cultivated, like dulse and alaria. The alaria dances on the lines as Sarah pulls them into the boat. I am growing a lot of seaweed out here, even with my rudimentary technology. <laughs> just proving you don't need much. Well, I think you just need a lot of like stupid determination. Yay! As we motor back to South Gouldsboro from Sarah's farm, she points to a large area smack dab in the middle of Frenchman Bay, between Stave and Long Porcupine Island. So that's where they, they want to put the salmon farm is right off of this porcupine over here. Yep. And then the, closer to the other one would be more over by COA, by Blackledge. I came to Gouldsboro with an agenda not just to see Sarah's farm and processing facility, but to gain an on-the-water perspective of a battle that's been happening in Frenchman Bay. These calm waters where I'm bobbing are the proposed site of a very controversial project, two closed-pen salmon farms. If you live in Maine, you may have heard about these proposed salmon pens in Frenchman Bay, in 2020, the Norwegian-backed company American Aqua Farms submitted an application to the Maine Department of Marine Resources to farm salmon in two locations, a total of 120 acres, between Gouldsboro and Bar Harbor. It's the first time in over 10 years that a company has tried to raise salmon in Frenchman Bay, and the proposal prompted a flurry of opposition from organizations, fishermen, and residents throughout the region. American Aqua Farms' initial application for an aquaculture lease was terminated by the Maine Department of Marine Resources in the spring of 2022. But big questions took hold in many rural coastal communities about the future of aquaculture and Maine's waters. There are questions about the size and scale of aquaculture here and how the regulatory process works. Folks are wondering, could Maine's coast look like Norway's, which has industrial-scale salmon farming? The answer to that question is no, it couldn't, and I'll explain why. But there is confusion and misinformation being spread about aquaculture regulations in the state. So in this episode, I'm going to try to clear up some of that confusion. A historic fishing town with over 50 miles of coastline, Gouldsboro is made up of dozens of micro waterfronts 
villages with their own infrastructure, fishing communities, and points of access. In this episode, we're visiting the village of South Gouldsboro to hear from Sarah Redmond and longtime lobsterman Jerry Potter about the challenges this waterfront faces. And we'll explore how the story of Frenchman Bay and American aqua farms is affecting small towns all along Maine's coast. We leave Sarah's farm and motor back to Bunker's Cove in South Gouldsboro. Once we're on dry land, Sarah shows me around her seaweed facility. Three women, Sarah's crew today, hang long pieces of sugar kelp in a greenhouse where the sun will dry the seaweed for future processing. Will you fill this whole greenhouse today? We will fill this whole greenhouse. We've already filled that one and we're gonna have to go to another site. So we really got lucky finding this place because it's right on the water, right on the shores of Frenchman Bay, has access, it's right around the corner from, from our farms and it has everything we need so we can um, run a saltwater nursery here to produce the seed. We can go out with the boats and bring our harvest in and then we have um, greenhouse solar drying facilities for our processing. And then we also have a milling and packing operation. So. We can do everything we need right here. And so being a vertically integrated company, that's really important. Springtide Seaweed shares the waterfront space in Bunker's Cove with about 15 to 20 fishermen and a wild seaweed harvester. The village of South Gouldsboro serves multiple users and is both incredibly functional and quite frankly, pretty inadequate. And so when, you, when we talk about working waterfront, we're also really talking about infrastructure and even even as simple as it seems in rural Maine, like we don't have three-phase power in most of these places, and you need three-phase power to run a lot of your equipment and machinery. This waterfront is similar to so many small coves and villages in Maine's coastal towns. Next door to Sarah's facility, there's a neglected lobster pound, a lobsterman's wharf and fish shack, a semi-public wharf for fishermen, and a public boat launch. The private wharf is owned by lobsterman Jerry Potter, who's lived and fished here his entire life. We'll talk to Jerry later. Looking at our working waterfront and access infrastructure as kind of a public necessity is important because these are all privately held um, pieces of, of the puzzle and they're so important. They are the connecting links between land and sea. The wharves are all privately owned save for a defunct and unusable town pier and a public boat launch. And fishermen lease access to the waterfront, or they use space for traps and other gear based on, essentially, a handshake. And so it, it really gives you the sense of how, you know, how vulnerable we are to losing even the what's left of the working waterfront here when it can just be bought and sold anything could happen to it. The lack of investment, the failing infrastructure, the vulnerability of these coastal communities, all of these factors are at play when a corporation like American Aqua Farms shows up with a new proposal. For Sarah, the proximity of South Gouldsboro to the site of the proposed salmon farms makes her feel that they're more vulnerable. The private wharves could be sold to the highest bidder and the highest bidder could, perhaps, be a multi-million dollar Norwegian salmon company. And if a corporation buys up the waterfront, there is concern that the tenuous access for fishermen could be lost. 
and and so I do think that there is an interesting kind of view there in terms of what what do we mean by working waterfront and what are we trying to preserve or what are we trying to ensure for the future. The vulnerabilities in Maine's working waterfront communities explain some of the opposition to American aqua farms. And the company's not going away. They plan to resubmit their lease application in the coming years, according to their spokesperson. So I want to dig into that proposal a bit so we can learn how and why it's received so much attention in the past two years. Before we dive into the American Aqua Farms proposal, I want to take a minute to understand what aquaculture is. How is it defined? According to Sebastian Bell, the executive director of the Maine Aquaculture Association and a member of Island Institute's Board of Trustees, the international definition of aquaculture is pretty simple. It's animals or plants that are cultivated in water. It can be on land or at sea. It can be in fresh water or salt water. So aquaculture has been going on in the state of Maine for over 100 years. Not a lot of people realize that. That's Sebastian Bell. A little disclaimer here that American Aqua Farms is not affiliated with or members of the Maine Aquaculture Association. The first aquaculture in this state was mostly hatcheries. There was a cod hatchery in Booth Bay Harbor and Atlantic salmon hatcheries in Down East Waters. Most of these were run with the intention to build back cod and salmon stocks. But the modern version of aquaculture really started in about 1976, um, and our association was started in 1977. And the early farms in Maine um, grew salmon, oysters, and mussels. Those were the three um, species that were grown. Um, and that conti- those, those continue to be the principal species that are grown in the state of Maine. Those are the big three species that are grown. Added to that list is seaweed, which has become a big player in Maine aquaculture in the last five years. According to Sebastian, perceptions of aquaculture in Maine have shifted in the last 40 years. The, the perception of aquaculture, I would say, um, has changed from the early 70s. In the early 70s, um, people didn't know what it was. Um, people had never heard of it, um, and uh, it really was kind of the new uh, entrant into some of the coastal communities. Now, uh, we have a farm in virtually every coastal community along the coast, and we are part of the working waterfront. The perception has changed. I think it's, interestingly, it's, it's changed in a way that um, people view us as part of the working waterfront, uh, as part of those local communities. In Down East Maine, there is already salmon farming. There are pens owned and operated by Cook Aquaculture, a Canadian company that's been raising salmon in the state since 2004. I'll explain a little bit more about Cook later, but let's just start by saying that the proposal from American Aqua Farms was really different from the salmon pens that already exist in Maine waters. The company's plan is to raise 66 million pounds of salmon a year on two farms. Those two farms would contain 15 pens, all closed pen systems. Imagine salmon swimming within a net inside of a bag. And these pens would be in Frenchman Bay, one of the busiest waterways both commercially and recreationally in the state. Okay, okay. For this, where, where we are right now and what your name is? 
My name's Jerry Potter, and this is South Cove, Ohio. They call it Bunker's Cove. Yep. Jerry Potter has lived and fished in South Gouldsboro all his life. And when he first heard about the proposal, he says he didn't argue much. American Aqua Farms sounded like a U.S. company, and he supports working waterfront jobs. But then he heard about one of the site locations, the one near Long Porcupine Island. Well, right, right inside of here is a hole, a hop hole, which is 300 feet deep. And the rest of the water from there up to Hancock's boat, 120 feet deep. Well, them deep holes, they settle into it. When Jerry says they, he's talking about shrimp. Now, I used to go out early in the morning and try to get the first toe in that hole. Because once you make one toe, they scatter, you know. The shrimp industry in Maine collapsed. No one's been allowed to catch shrimp since 2013. Having spent most of his 80 years of life on the water, Jerry has made a lot of observations in this bay. And he and other fishermen in the area believe that the deep recession in Frenchman Bay, Hop Hole, is a spawning ground for shrimp. One of the American Aqua Farm site locations is next to Hop Hole. Their lease encompasses the entire area for the infrastructure they'd need to operate their pens. One of my best spots, Lofton, all the way offshore, 20 miles offshore to here, one of my best spots is the Hop Hole, one I'm telling you about. Lobs have settled right in there, and they're going to numb them out of this place in July, in August, in the hop hole. Numbing them means catching a lot of lobsters. And that's why they want the first set of salmon pens there, you know, 15 pens. Well, just the, just the north of it, they're just not right over it, but they want that for their septic tanks, what I call it. The septic tanks that Jerry mentions, well, here's what he means. The idea behind these closed pen systems is that Because salmon are contained inside of a net that's in a polymer bag, there's less waste from feed and excrement going into the waterway. And to make that system work, American aqua farms would pump the treated wastewater from the net pen down into the deep water of Hop Hole and continuously replace the water in the pens. And that pumping would take energy specifically large diesel generators on floats, pumping water 24 hours a day. The potential environmental effects of that discharge became a sticking point for many environmental groups and fishermen. American Aqua Farms estimates that the sites would collectively discharge 4.1 billion gallons of primary treated wastewater every day and 0.36 million gallons of treated discharge. For comparison, the town of Bar Harbor is approved to discharge 2 million gallons of treated wastewater per day. Here's Sarah Redmond. And in order to raise fish, you have to feed fish. And so they would actually have to truck in more than 66 million pounds of feed to feed those salmon. Um, And so animals and plants are very different. And when you feed an animal, especially something high on the food chain like a salmon, you produce a lot of waste. And that waste will go into the water. And even though they say that these pens are eco-friendly and they're different because they're closed, essentially it's just a bag covering a a regular net pen where they are able to capture some of the excess waste that would normally settle under the pens. But at the same time, because it's so-called closed, they have to pump water through it at a continuous rate so that the fish don't die. And so you're creating a situation where you have to expend tremendous amounts of energy 
to move that water through. But normally in open pen, the water just moves through with the currents. And so they have to have generators going 24-7 to run those pumps. The location of the pens at the foot of Acadia National Park, the prospect of those diesel generators running all day, the possibility of salmon escaping or waste spilling into the important commercial waterway, and the sheer volume of salmon being raised sparked enough concern to inspire serious opposition to this project from multiple organizations, individuals, and businesses, including Island Institute. And in 2021, that opposition organized into a protest, a flotilla of fishermen, recreational boaters, kayakers, and sea farmers all joined together near the Hop Hole lease site to show solidarity against American Aqua Farms' proposal. Boy, I tell you what, I went out there and everybody was, had me giving them rides out of the boat there, so I was a little bit late getting out there, but I tell you what, my heart come out my throat when I get out there. Unbelievable. A tears boat come my eyes. I see that there's 125 boats, yeah. and it, and we were talking like you and I. And I didn't think anybody else cared or was was fighting it or doing anything, you know. And then they had that flotilla or anybody against that aquifers come out in any kind of boat, you know, don't matter kayak or sailboat or whatever. And and they all come out. Boy, it was good. So all the fishermen, all the local people, all the summer people. All the people up on, you know, the, the summer communities in Winter Harbor and in Sereno and Hancock and in MTI, everybody's coming together against this proposal. And so there's tremendous community opposition to what they're proposing, which has been a, just a fascinating experience to see all these people that are always sort of on different, coming from different places, come together on this one issue and really bring the community together around this one issue. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org. On today's show, we're once again featuring an episode from the Island Institute podcast series called From the Sea Up, produced by audio storyteller Galen Koch. Our story today is about Gouldsboro's working waterfront and a recent net pen salmon farming operation proposed for Gouldsboro's Frenchman Bay. So far, the voices you've heard include Galen Koch, the story narrator, Sarah Redman, the founder of Springtide Seaweed, and Jerry Potter, a longtime commercial fisherman, as they share perspectives about the recent salmon farming proposal in Frenchman Bay. Let's get back to the story now and hear how the town of Gouldsboro decided to handle the situation. And just a note that this story was pre-recorded and pre-produced, so we're not taking any calls today. In November of 2021, the town of Gouldsboro adopted a moratorium banning finfish aquaculture projects. This would make it harder for American aqua farms to set up their processing facility in Prospect Harbor, where they hope to take over the 100,000-square-foot Maine Fairtrade Lobster Facility. After American Aqua Farms' application was terminated, the company did purchase that 100,000-square-foot facility, signaling to the community that they intend to resubmit an application and pursue salmon farming in Frenchman Bay. One of the questions that kept coming up in town meetings and information sessions with American Aqua Farms was, why Maine? Why Frenchman Bay? Why propose a salmon farm within one of the most heavily trafficked bays in the state? 
We asked American Aqua Farms some clarifying questions for this podcast, but we didn't receive a response from the company. There are a couple of important things to understand about salmon farming in Norway. First, Norway has a huge coastline. It's 65,000 miles, the second largest in the world. And there are over 1,000 fish farms in the country. Norway produces almost 55% of the salmon consumed globally. And unlike Maine, where individuals or companies have to apply for an aquaculture lease, Norway issues permits to farmers. That permitting has slowed in recent years because the country is inundated with farms, and Norwegian salmon permits have a big price tag. The current market value for a fish farming permit there is 19 million USD. In Maine, an aquaculture lease costs $100 per acre. Although that seems low, that number, $100 per acre, does not take into account the hundreds of thousands of dollars that a company or individual would have to spend for a fin fish aquaculture site in Maine. Because before the site is even approved, you'd have to get a discharge permit from the Department of Environmental Protection. It's clear that Norway and Maine have very different systems for starting a salmon farm. And so, this is speculative, but maybe American Aqua Farms was under the impression that Maine would be an easier place to start a large-scale farm, because it's cheaper to apply for a permit here. And there are less salmon farms, so maybe regulators aren't as aware of potential risk. But according to Sebastian Bell, that impression is misguided. The leasing system is, in some ways, discriminatory against aquaculture, not, not supportive of it. But that's okay. That's because that means that an applicant has to pick an area where they know they have a high likelihood of success. And, and of course, that is the tragedy of the American Aqua Farms application, which is that uh, for anybody who knew anything about the leasing system, uh, they would have known that picking those areas uh, were highly unlikely to be permitted for a whole series of reasons, not the least of which um, there are there are significant commercial fisheries uh, there. And so, you know, commercial fishery, if there's any significant commercial fishery in an area, by law, it is illegal for the DMR to grant a lease site. Um, and that's right in stone in the law. In April of 2022, the Maine Department of Marine Resources terminated American Aqua Farms' application because the company did not source their salmon eggs from an approved source. The proposal didn't even have a chance to go through the robust process that applications undergo. It was, essentially, dead from the start. American Aqua Farms' lease application spread fear and doubt about the future of Maine's working waterfront. It reignited a conversation about aquaculture in the state, and some of those conversations have been really productive. Coastal residents are considering how aquaculture fits into Maine's working harbors. But there are some organizations that are providing misleading information to local communities, especially about Maine's current regulations. There have been uh, a number of efforts recently, um, well-funded, um, to try to change that perception, um, to try to make the case that aquaculture over a certain size is industrial. And to, and to play, I think, in particular to people's fears about big stuff versus small stuff. 
In response to the fear of industrial aquaculture, some communities have approved their own moratoriums. Addison, Beals Island, Cutler, Penobscot, Machias Port, and Winter Harbor all have adopted temporary bans on aquaculture. Drafting and enforcing these moratoriums requires small towns to put up money for legal fees. And that's one of the reasons the towns of Stonington and Deer Isle decided to wait on the issue. A lot of these moratoriums promoted by advocacy groups define industrial-scale aquaculture as any farm over five acres. Remember Sarah Redmond's seaweed farm? That's 20 acres. Recently, the town of Sorrento opted not to adopt a moratorium after an oyster farmer pointed out that a ban on sites over five acres would affect his 5.85-acre oyster farm. And um, although you're seeing uh, some towns pass these moratoriums, um, I think, frankly, the towns are being woefully misled uh, in terms of what the effects of those moratoriums would be and in terms of what aquaculture really is in the state. I want to dig into some of the assertions that are being made by advocacy groups in the state, because some of the information that's promoted is misleading from a regulatory or process standpoint. And regulations and processes are really important when it comes to aquaculture in the state of Maine. And they're also very, very specific. First, let's untangle some of Maine's regulations for a standard lease application. There is confusion in communities about how towns are involved in the lease application process. The Department of Marine Resources controls any waters below the low tide mark. Many citizens are asking what jurisdiction, if any, do towns have over state-controlled waters? The fact is, there is built-in input for municipalities in the aquaculture leasing process. Let's say I want to start an oyster farm in Casco Bay. To submit an application for a standard lease site for my farm, I would first have a meeting with DMR staff and a harbor master or town official where my lease is located. Within four months of that meeting, I would submit my draft application to the DMR. After submitting the draft application, the next step is to hold a scoping session in the municipality where my proposed lease is predominantly located. That's when anyone from neighbors to town officials can ask me about my proposal and share concerns. Is it in the way? Is it by an important industry that I didn't consider? Does it interfere with habitat? If at this stage the DMR deems my final application complete, then it can move to the public hearing stage. That's when municipal officials have another opportunity to submit public comment. Because towns can apply for what's called intervener status, they can submit witnesses or evidence opposing or supporting my site. So, you know, the, the towns can't veto a lease, um, but they have much more input than any other stakeholder group in the process. And to be honest with you, um, if I, I can't think of a lease application that has gone forward where a town has objected to it. Applying for an aquaculture lease in the state of Maine is rigorous and time-consuming. Applicants are now waiting between three to four years to get approval from the DMR. And because of how many steps there are in the process, 
a lot of applicants, like, for instance, American Aqua Farms, don't make it to that final application stage. Another big conversation happening in town meetings and around dinner tables is about the size and scale of aquaculture in Maine waters. If you've sat in on any town meetings on the issue, you might hear a lot of worry around 1,000-acre lease sites and an industrialization of the coast. But no company or individual can have a 1,000-acre lease site. Here's Sebastian Bell from the Maine Aquaculture Association. We have caps on the size of farms already. You can't have a lease that's greater than 100 acres. Okay, so that's, that's cap number one. That 100-acre cap is really useful for bottom-cultured mussels, which are grown two-dimensionally on the seafloor. Most other aquaculture that happens in Maine is three-dimensional, like salmon pens or kelp that's grown vertically. And the second thing is no individual company can have more than 500 acres unless they file a site rotation and following plan with the DMR, who has to review it, who has to consult with DEP, and approve it. Um, and the reason that they will approve something like that is precisely because of the kinds of farming that Cook does, where they, they have been able to radically reduce the use of any chemicals in their production. So a company or individual can have a total of 500 acres of combined individual leases, and they can apply for more than 500 acres of ocean bottom if they submit and are approved for an annual fouling plan. To quote the DMR, the commissioner may, by rule, authorize leases in excess of the 500-acre limit if the commissioner determines that the increase is beneficial for the management of aquaculture and is environmentally and economically appropriate. That's Section 13A of the Research in Aquaculture Leases Regulations. That fouling plan and the increase in acreage needs to be approved by the DMR and the Department of Environmental Protection. Understanding the nuances of regulations is important. In order to engage in conversations about the future of Maine's working waterfront, its fisheries, and its communities, we need to have accurate information. American Aqua Farms' application for lease sites in Frenchman Bay sparked controversy and debate among citizens and organizations in the region. And for Sarah Redmond, that's not all bad. But also it's allowed for some more interesting conversations around aquaculture, um, trying to distinguish the difference between something like a giant fish farm from Norway and a local organic seaweed farmer, you know, and shellfish farmers, we have oyster farmers, mussel farmers, seaweed farmers, the difference between sort of local, independently owned and corporate from away kind of operations. So there's a lot of complexity in, the, in aquaculture, but then also in fisheries. It was a unique moment in 2021 when constituents from so many main groups came together against the salmon farm. And for Sarah, that energy could be harnessed for bigger questions our coastline is facing. And what is actually happening in this bay right now with the warming water and the invasive species and the changing dynamics? And how can we, as, an, as a community that's now unified against a salmon farm threat, how can we come together and say, like, let's figure out what's happening in the natural ecosystem of the bay? Because areas like this where you have breeding grounds and nursery grounds become the source for all the other 
fisheries in the future. And so is there a way that we can understand where the cod are and where the haddock are and where the halibut are and the, and the shrimp and the lobsters and the crabs and the clams and the worms and everything and then sort of restore some of these ecosystems so that we can live in a future where there's like a balance between sustainable local wild harvest fisheries and small-scale aquaculture farms. That those are the bigger questions and it's like we're so busy putting out fires of like we don't want massive industrialized industry on our waters but then like how can we go further and be like how do we you know restore the bay so that it does support our livelihoods in the future. For a small waterfront like South Gouldsboro, those livelihoods are varied. This harbor serves multiple businesses, and this is the legacy of Maine's working waterfront. It is owner-operated lobster boats, scallop boats, harvesters, and farmers. It is aquaculture and wild fisheries and clamors and wormers. I guess when you look at a place like South Goolsboro, and you know, this is probably true for most places up and down the coast, when you have like a protected cove where people can harbor their boats and operate their businesses, it does seem to serve more than one entity. And so it's sort of that kind of public infrastructure that you look at in terms of the importance of that. And, and how do we, how do we as a society in, you know, invest in that and invest in the access and invest in the sort of community-based support that it provides. The questions about ownership and access on Maine's waterfront and waters is really just beginning. And those questions are as existential as they are tangible. What will the character of Maine's working waterfront be? Who will be investing in it? And how will communities support it? These are questions that will shape coastal communities in the coming decades. And these are questions that require us to dig deep on the facts and to understand the nuances of regulations, community needs, economics, and social dynamics. In South Gouldsboro, after all the dust settled and the lease application for American aqua farms was terminated, there is still failing infrastructure. Still questions of who owns that lobster pound and what will they do with it? Jerry Potter's wharf is loaded with blue lobster traps in early May. He still owns this wharf, and he's been offered a lot of money for this piece of property. Yeah, no, I'm glad I didn't sell it, because I want my grandsons to take it over anyway. So I got two grandsons that, uh, well, actually there's three of them. One's young, but they're, they're all out of high school. They're fishing, you know, so I want them to take it over. That's my house right there. See, I, I can see the wharf and my boat from my house. <laughs> Thank you for listening to From the Sea Up. This episode was written and produced by me, Galen Koch, and assistant producer Olivia Jolly for the Island Institute. Nicole Wolf takes the photographs that accompany this episode. From the Sea Up senior editors are Isaac Kestenbaum and Josie Holtzman. Special thanks to Camden Hunt, Sarah Redmond, and the crew of Springtide Seaweed, Natalie Springle, Jerry Potter, Jeff Nichols from the Maine Department of Marine Resources, Afton Vigu, and Sebastian Bell from the Maine Aquaculture Association for their help and participation in this episode. And thanks to local reporters in Maine who've been following the American Aquafarm story for two years. Most of the music in this episode is by Q Shop, 
You can hear more of their tunes at www.cue-shop.com. From the Sea Up is made possible by the Fund for Maine Islands through a partnership between Island Institute, College of the Atlantic, Maine Sea Grant, and the First Coast. To hear past episodes and for more information, visit www.islandinstitute.org podcast. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Coastal Conversations on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM and streaming online at WERU.org with me, your host, Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant. We hope you enjoyed the special broadcast of From the Sea Up, the Island Institute podcast series produced by Galen Koch. With our time left on today's Coastal Conversations, we wanted to stick to the same geography, the Goldsboro Peninsula, but take a bit of a step back in time. You heard the narrator in our first story talk about American Aquafarm's purchase of the main fair trade lobster processing facility in the Goldsboro village of Prospect Harbor. While American Aquafarm's intention is to someday convert the lobster processing operation into a salmon processing facility and hatchery, this plant was in the business of packing sardines for nearly a hundred years and its heritage and economic impact run deep in Goldsboro, the state of Maine, and even the nation. As the era of Maine's sardine industry was coming to an end in the latter part of the 20th century, and sardine packing plants were closing one by one up and down the Maine coast, the Stinson Sardine Cannery was the very last holdout. But its final owner, Bumblebee Foods, shuttered the sardine operation for good in 2010, making it not only the last sardine cannery in Maine, but the very last sardine cannery in the whole of the United States. In 2011, the year after it closed, oral historians from Oral History and Folklife Research, Inc. sought to honor and document the Stinson Sardine Factory legacy by interviewing a number of former employees. And so, to close out our show today, we'll share some clips from two of these interviews with women who worked as sardine packers. We'll hear a short clip from the interview with Arlene Hartford, followed by a slightly longer clip from the interview with Leela Anderson. Both women were interviewed by Keith Ludden, and the full collection is available at www.oralhistoryandfolklife.org. So we'll start first with the short clip with Arlene Hartford, and then we'll jump right into the interview with Leela Anderson. So in this clip, Arlene starts by referring to her mother's experience working at the sardine packing plant, and then she moves into her own time there. Here's Arlene Hartford. I know she was very tired. And back then you, uh, back then you had to process cooked fish. So they had to do them up before they come home. And sometimes she'd get home 1 o'clock in the morning, then turn around and go back to work around 6. But now we process fish, you know, don't have them cooked. But we always went in the same time in the morning. Or they called, on, on call. They would call us what time, if the fish didn't get in, like, until nine o'clock in the morning, they would call us and tell us what time the 
fish was going to be in. <laughs> they kept us up to date. They didn't want to lose us. They wanted us to come in. <laughs> uh, we're going to work at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, something like that. So that's how we knew. Uh, I was average. I wasn't what you call a fast, fast packer, and I wasn't a slow packer. I was average. Yeah, I, I did my part. <laughs> I liked it when we used to cut fish with scissors, although I've got quite a few cuts, but I liked it better that way. You snip the heads off or something, you might get your finger instead of with a head or tail. Yeah, very easy. And you have them done up with tape. But you still cut right through. Your scissors are very sharp when you're cutting fish. Yeah, everybody tapes their fingers. It kind of slows it up a little bit, even though it doesn't always, you know, help a lot, but it still slows it up a little bit by getting cut. Oh, we've had some good ones. <laughs> you stand like this, then you had two belts. One was can belt, one was fish belt. And you had the fish... You pulled the fish out onto the table like this and then you pick the cans off whatever you want and cut them and put them in then when you got then you had a hole right here where the chum went down and that had a belt and that went right out into the what they call a tank room so he had three actually three belts can belt chum belt and fish belt then when you get that done you just pull some more fish off that was the good times it used to be uh, enjoyable watching them come in and <clears throat> unload the fish, you know. And uh, so it was kind of exciting. We could go down to the wharf and watch them when they unloaded the fish. It was so nice and cool and calm and just, you know, so great. Well, we tri my tw I have a twin. And we tried several different things, but we we were so small that we were turned down. So we needed to work. So I, we I worked in there when I was in high school, you know, to make money. But I said when I get out of high school, that's it. But and I went and was in the any for a little while, and then I said, well, I got married, and I said it's time I went out and made a earnings, you know. So I left the job I was on and went in the canneries and been there ever since. First experience I had packing fish, it was up to Snow's. The little fa it was just a little small factory. And they had a lady that, you know, you had to, to check out your age and your birth and every, when you were born. She came in, and my twin sister and I was at the table packing. She said, you girls must leave the table because you are not old enough to work. And we said, well, yeah, and I wouldn't say a word, but my twin sister said, well, we are, and they got our birth certificate upstairs in the office. She made us go away from the table and go right up and verify it. Oh, we don't we used to only work from uh, the fish. Were, they didn't get too many sardines like in the spring until sometime maybe it was June or July before they really started. And then they'd start in and they'd go right through. And the factory used to only run till from uh, when the sardines started running in the spring, summer, until... September or so, and we'd be done for the winter. We never worked winters. Because when I first started in the old factory, when I was young, there was no end to hours. We worked, go home, just time enough to get an hour or two of sleep and go back on the bus, because they had buses in that carried the packers. 
and back to work we'd go. But see, then later on, when they got years went on, they had hours, eight hours a day, or if we wanted to work overtime to get them done, so we could have longer time off, and we'd finish them up. They only had shifts at one time. That was in the new plant they built, but it didn't last long. They went completely to just one. But in the old factory, just everybody worked at the hours that they had. If you had to work eleven hours, you work eleven hours. And you go home and have a couple hours sleep and come back and go at it again. But we had we did cooked fish then. Well, they they cooked them, and they had them on flakes. They had these big tall wooden, you know, looked like a box. It had shells and it had flakes, wire flakes that went in, and the fish were laying on them cooked. And they and they had men that would stand there and. And they'd put them on as fast as they could, and as fast as we wanted, when we'd pull it off, the two of us, one on it, the, my partner and me. And then when we get done, we had to flip it over and put it back in, and then haul out another one. And that's the way they done them then. Then you, then you dumped, your, they dumped your cans. You had a belt that your cans was on. You got your cans, put them down on the thing. Then you put them on. And then you had empty trays over here that held twenty-five cans to a tray. You packed the twenty-five, and you had to pack four of those make the case for those trays. Then then they'd have a, someone come pick it up and put it on a cat, take it to the cooker. And then you just kept on, that's how you did them. You built your cases up, and, you, and they punched them as you got a case. That's quite a sight to see, all them fish nice and shiny. Mixture of small ones, big. Because when the fish come in a lot of times, if they had too many little ones like that in them, they didn't... That and wasn't worth picking the larger ones out. They wouldn't do them. There was a lot, of, a lot of waste at times. And then when those great big ones come in, it we did. You, I'm gonna tell you, you wanted some sharp scissors when you done them. Fish was about that long, about that thick through it. Some of them, two in a can, two to three in a can, big fish. You didn't have no measure, nothing. You just, in your mind, knew just what length they were gonna be. You knew just exactly how you was cutting them. It's unbelievable that you could do that, isn't it? You stand there all day long, pack sardines, and you're cutting those fish yourself and judging the length. Because everybody had their own rhythm. I used to throw my fish up in the air and catch it and come down and cut the head off. And, and, and for example, a friend of mine that packed, she just kept hers and then just... But I didn't dare do that because a lot of them cut right through that. And I said, no, no, I'd rather cut my finger off and cut through that part of my hand. So I threw my fish up in the air, and when it come down, I cut. That's why the people, when they come in the factory, the visitors, they always want to come to my table. I said, we got to see that little girl that flips them fish, toss it up, and t- flip it over, and I'd cut the head and tail off. I, and I'd turn it myself. Well, a lot of them didn't turn them. They just took the scissors and went underhanded. I wouldn't do that because I was left-handed. But I'd, I cut the fish from my right hand. I didn't very often, as fast as I was, I didn't very often cut my fingers. But they got some bad cuts. Bad cuts. And when you worked on the flakes in the old days, if somebody on that end of you, your table went like I was on, she was on that end and I was on that end. If she flipped that four I got ready, you could get a, you had your scissors in your hand, you could get a bad cut, bad one. Yeah, of course, my mother worked there long before I did. It smelled bad. 
she'd bring, stop at that little store and bring home cookies and stuff, and they'd taste just like, ah. Uh, she didn't have to worry about us eating them up because we didn't like the taste of them. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it when they started working like uh, 6.30 in the morning till 3 in the day, you know, during the day. I liked it then. Once in a while we'd work over, like I said, if we wanted a long weekend and we knew we had a few too many fish on a Friday, we'd say, let's do them all up, even if we had to stay there. Some nights we were there till 6 o'clock, but we'd finish them all up so we could have the long weekend. I think we had more fun, though, in the old days. I think we raised more devil. Oh, we'd get each other going. Oh, gosh, they'd do some awful colour, play some awful tricks on each other. Oh, we had we had a fellow that he, uh, I know what did he do? We used to fill his dinner pail up with nails and everything. Okay. We'd fill his dinner pail up with nails and stuff we'd find. <laughs> we'd do, Charlie Westcott was his name. He was a nice fella. We'd put stuff in his lunch pail. He was a nice old fella. And he'd do things to us, so we'd do things. We'd take his lunch, put stuff in the place of his lunch. <laughs> oh, Nancy Harrington, some of us, were another pack open. We worked out in a place on the end of the the line that was called Russian, Russia. They called that end of the factory Russia. And the main factory was... <laughs> it wasn't. That was just the name they give for that room. And he worked out there. They, oh, we'd get him. Because they used to burn coal then. I don't know. I never did find out why they called that Russia. So many packers was out there. I never I never worked out there. I always worked out in the main main factory. Mm-hmm. Oh, some of the girls did some awful things to their bosses. My sister worked there too, my oldest sister. She and another friend, they took the boss down, Pearly McNutty's name was, and they nailed his necktie to the floor. Came right down and nailed it. That that girl was, came off. She was she, that was before I went there. She was a big, tall, skinny girl, and she—I mean, she was fast too. But I didn't work there then. Nailed his neck tight as <laughs> Said you girls will pay for this, but he never did nothing to him. But I was—I did pack under him. I didn't have very many bosses. I had nice bosses. They buy them in the store, but because we could—we was allowed a couple cans a day. We could, we could go out in the casing room and get us. And they had a big table out there. They'd put ones that, because they weren't allowed to pack certain dents in, in the round of where the seals. If they if the ones that cased up didn't see if there was anything wrong with them, they had to put them aside. They'd put them on a table so us packers would have some at night. There was a lot to it. There, there was a lot to that sardine plant. Slow by one by one by one they closed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you really what people believe. They never used to. They never used to fit, uh, run it in the winter. And once they st- Eastport broke the rules and started working winters, and that started it going. And I think otherwise they ne- they would still been working. That was Leela Anderson, a sardine packer at the Stinson Sardine Plant, who worked there for years before it closed in 2010. Before Leela Anderson, we heard from Arlene Hartford, who also worked at the Stinson Sardine Plant in Prospect Harbor on the Goldsboro Peninsula. Thanks to the folks at Oral History and Folklife Research, Inc. for permission to air these clips. You can access their full collections at www.oralhistoryandfolklife.org.
And thanks also to production assistant Camden Hunt for helping edit the audio clips for this segment of today's show. If you want to hear more about sardines, check out the Coastal Conversations archive at weru.org for our August 28, 2020 episode called Stories of the Sardine Industry, which features these clips and many more. Coastal Conversations is produced with support from the Maine Sea Grant Program at the University of Maine, bringing marine science to Maine people. Catch the latest episode of Coastal Conversations from 4 to 5 p.m. on the fourth Friday of each month on WERU Community Radio at 89.9 FM, or find past shows in the weru.org public affairs archives. You might also like to catch our sister program, Talk of the Towns with Ron Beard, on the second Wednesday of each month at 4 p.m. Our show's theme music, A Following Sea, was composed and performed by Paul Anderson. Until next time, this is Natalie Springle from Maine Sea Grant, host of Coastal Conversations, wishing you a good weekend.